1: No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the MSW Book Club. This series is the coverage of Hatchet Man, how Bill Barr broke the prosecutor's code and corrupted the Justice Department, written by former federal prosecutor and our friend, CNN legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Ellie, hello. Hello. Thank you
1: for having me, Allison. First of all, I want to say you are the Oprah of podcasting with your book
0: recommendations. <laughs> Ooh, um, I need to have a sticker, right? <laughs> right. We need an
1: AG sticker that gets that gets put on front. Um, but your 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 fans, your audience, your listeners have been great. I've heard from so many of them, and I, I I don't know if I could have picked the more perfect audience for this book than than your listeners.
0: Yeah, the the Leguminati is super into it, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I wanted to. Um, I'm. I wanted to start this discussion with the ending because this is a banger yeah. ending to this book, <laughs> Ellie. And the way that I described it in last week's episode, episode six, um, I went through the 2020 election um, and you know on into the culture warrior part of, yeah. of your story, and then the road back. But then humility. You hit us at the end with this incredible story, and I don't tell. The, I don't tell listeners what it is because I want them to read it for themselves. <laughs> it's so well written. Thank but you. in the end here, after you get through that anecdote and I, you know, all of these incredible anecdotes that you tell, that you weave throughout this book are so great, but you you talk about how we need to go forward with humility. and yeah. And I wanted to ask you, because now we have... A new Department of Justice head. We have a new Attorney General named uh, Merrick Garland, as everyone knows. Uh, how? I, and I want to ask you because I'm, I'm I want to go to the road back, and I want to give grades on the nine things that you talk about with this yeah. new DOJ. But sure. what do you think about with the humility part?
1: Huh? Well, look, Merrick Garland certainly has brought back humility, as I describe it and intended it in the book. And what I mean by that is an understanding that when you are at DOJ, it's not about you, whether you're a lowly line level prosecutor or supervisor like I was at the SDNY or the attorney general. It's not about your personal wants and preferences. It's not about whatever political party you come from. It's about something much bigger and grander, and it goes beyond DOJ. It it includes our court system, our jury system, and that relates to, to the anecdote I tell, and I won't spoil the ending. And I think Merrick Garland has done a very good job of that, I think largely because of his upbringing, because he came up, as I did, doing real cases on the front lines. Um, and, and, and how do I score him on that? The kind of things he said, words matter when you're the attorney general, um, the way he speaks about what it means to be a federal prosecutor, what the job of DOJ is. That said, I do want to draw a distinction here between humility and passivity which i think are two different things and i've been critical and i was critical just a few hours ago on twitter of a lot of things that merrick garland has done and i think he's been too passive in a lot of his um approaches and i'll give you just the most recent one we keep seeing more and more stories about how the january 6 insurrectionists are being let go with misdemeanor pleas misdemeanors are are Minor crimes are punishable by a year or less in prison. Nobody really goes to prison for them. And the, the thing that really just w- uh, grabbed me today to the point where I just thought enough is the guy who wore the Auschwitz T-shirt during the January 6th insurrection. Look, it's not a crime to wear that T-shirt. I mean, it's, you know, I, as a grandson of two Holocaust survivors, uh, I, I, you know, I, I feel and understand every bit of what that means. It's not a crime. And I'm not saying you should be treated differently because of it. Although maybe there's an argument you should, but so many people who are seeing who went into the Capitol that day are being let off with trespassing, please. Like if you trespassed in a VA hospital or went into a, a federal park that you weren't allowed into or something like that. And I think Merrick Garland has been allergic to anything that might be perceived publicly as a shot across the bow to Bill Barr, to Donald Trump, or even to January 6th. And and I'm critical of him for that, but that's that's a little bit distinct from humility. So I'd separate those two things out.
0: Yeah, and I think we can cover that sort of in the road back. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what you're what you're talking about, Beryl Howell has has even addressed in her courtroom yeah. um, is saying, look, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> and I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. And and she even brought up the money. She's like five hundred dollars for these misdemeanors and fifteen hundred. We're paying the the people who perpetrated the attack on the Capitol are paying one point five million in damages while the taxpayers are paying two and a half billion to right. to get the the right security. She's like, this doesn't. What are you doing? You know, and then, of course, we've had judges question the constitutionality of some of the uh, crimes, the conspiracy. uh, You know, was it actually a a proceeding, a congressional proceeding, the verification of the votes and how you're going to have to explain that? And we've just seen a lot of more so than I've ever seen before. But I've only been watching this closely for a couple of years now, and I'm certainly not a lawyer, but uh, it seems like a lot of court correcting Department of Justice actions here, you know, like the court saying, maybe you should try this, maybe you should do this. It just seems like there's a lot more of it, or, or at least particularly from what Judge Beryl Howe was saying about these these low level offenses and, and low uh, restitution payments.
1: Yeah. And I think rightly by the courts. Look, courts do this sometimes. Um, it, it happened to me once in a while where a judge thought a plea was unduly lenient and would say, how do you justify this? That's fair. And I think it's very fair here. And I mean, look, it's not as if there are no felonies that apply. It's not as if they were, uh, you know, uh, drinking a six pack of beer, uh, you know, at, at the federal park or, you know, whatever Bruce Springsteen did. Right? remember Springsteen <laughs> got a federal misdemeanor because he was he had a shot of tequila on a federal beach or something here in Jersey. I, I should know the details of that. But it's not like <laughs> it's that. Um, and, you know, there is a deterrence need that is not being met here. It is legitimate. One of the roles of the prosecutor and courts is deterrence, meaning to scare the crap out of people, to let people know you shouldn't do this in the future, and if you do, there will be serious consequences. And I can't help but think that people who are plotting to do similar attacks, and we've seen at least one arrest of someone trying to do a January 6th copycat kind of thing, are, have to be looking at these and saying, "Wow, it's just a string of misdemeanors. These guys are getting slaps on the wrist." I mean, we used to do misdemeanor duty at the SDI once every, only when you were in your in your first year, you would get assigned like. One month where you had to go over one day and deal with all the misdemeanors. And it was the pettiest crap. It was like a guy smoking a cigarette in a restricted area of a VA hospital. And you would just go, all right, uh, $20 fine. How about that? Fine. Good. Next. That This isn't that. This is different. And it should be treated differently by DOJ.
0: Yeah. And I think the deterrence part, that's the uh, argument that Lawrence Tribe just made yesterday in his open letter, I guess you would call it, to Merrick Garland saying you have to prosecute Trump for the uh, plot to overthrow the government, not for political retaliation purposes, but for deterrence. And uh, that was one of his main arguments. And I'm hoping if anybody in this country has a persuasion over – uh, what Merrick Garland does. It's his former Harvard law professor, Lawrence Tribe. You remember he wrote that. He wrote the op ed about, you better not represent Mo Brooks. And then right. two days later, we get the filing that he's. I don't know that they're connected or anything, but that is exactly the same argument Lawrence Tribe was making.
1: Yeah. Um, look, I, I count me definitely on the side of DOJ has to take a very serious look at Donald Trump criminally, uh, not just, uh, uh, certainly on January 6th, but also on Ukraine and on Mueller obstruction and. It's hard to argue conclusively that he should or should not be charged because we need all the facts. Now, I think in some of these cases we have enough to go on. Um but I but I definitely disagree with the folks out there who say like he shouldn't be investigated. How can you even defend that he oh, shouldn't yeah, be investigated? Well, and, and I mean if you read Jeff's article what he really says is it would be too hard to prove intent. Um I disagree with that on a, on the factual level. I think look Let's take election interference. When you have the president saying, I need you to find 11,780 votes. When he says to the leaders of DOJ, just say there's election fraud and the Republican congressman and I will do the rest. I mean, those things show to me intent, criminal intent. So there's an argument to be had there. I I come down on the side of Merrick Garland absolutely has to do full investigations of all this. And I've not seen any indication publicly or through leaks or through reporting or through issuance of subpoenas that he is doing that. And and I don't know how he's going to answer why.
0: Yeah. And we, we can have discussions about sort of, you know, intent, you know, I agree with you. I think there's intent and there, there are, I think those are the, you know, those are reasonable discussions, but to say that there's no criminal predicate predicate to even investigate, there's way more than enough. And I think we're all in agreement with that. Um, all right, let's get to the the road back here. And then right. after we go through these um, nine things here, then I want to we have some listeners who have sent in some questions oh,
1: awesome.
0: uh, for us as well. who have been listening uh, over the last seven weeks, uh, six weeks, seven weeks, blah, long time. Um, first, explicitly reject Barr's stated view of complete presidential prosecutorial power. Um.
1: Yeah. So am I giving grades like in law school here?
0: Well, or, you know, it, have have we seen this uh, so far? Uh, explicitly, no. I mean, he hasn't issued
1: a ruling or, or an internal memo saying, I reject this view. But implicitly, it does seem clear that Merrick Garland does not view the president as having any prosecutorial power. And Joe Biden, to his credit, seems to share that view. One thing they've been very good on is erecting and respecting the wall that used to exist between. Doj and the White House. And what I mean by that, by the way, is not that they can never communicate about anything, not that Doj can't carry out the White House's policy preferences, right? Some administrations say want to do more or less on police reform, more or less on, um, you know, opiates enforcement. Where I do object is interference in a specific case: U.S. versus Michael Flynn, U.S. versus
0: Roger <laughs> Roger Stone. Stone. It's yeah.
1: clear that right. It's clear that that is not happening. They both both sides have said that will not happen. So so I give I'll, I'll give an A minus uh, there.
0: Yeah, and that sort of goes into number two, which is adopt that specific rule limiting communication with the president yeah. and the White House staff. That's kind of right inter- intertwined with it.
1: That's a straight A because Merrick Garland has done exactly that. He has issued a new policy. It was back in June saying. Here are some very strict limits on communications between DOJ and the White House.
0: Yeah. And and also, I mean, as I'm reading this, kind of sad that we have to spell that out, you know. But now yeah. what we've seen so many norms yep. just eviscerated, now we have to spell shit out. Okay. It's yeah. like... It's like putting, you know, the warning labels on ivermectin. Uh, do we really need the FDA to tweet out that you shouldn't take horse dewormer? I right, guess so. or, uh,
1: it's like when they started putting on um, Tide Pods. You know, these are not <sighs> snacks. Do not eat.
0: <laughs> Please do not eat. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- restore integrity to the ethics and recusal process um we've seen too much of this right? yeah
1: i'm gonna go incomplete on this one um you know we haven't seen any formal changes to the ethics and recusal process but this is another one that should be a no-brainer like how about this if you've already publicly expressed a conclusive opinion on a case you're out right or like (laughs) if you're a witness or a potential witness in a case you're out and i talk in the book about this case where i was (laughs) It kicked off not in a bad way but I was I was properly recused because my dad let me think my dad's law partner who sent me a funny note after he read this in the book but my dad's law partner had represented years before in a civil case somebody who was a potential witness in my case yeah I mean and that's right you should be out because you're not gonna kick a case you're not gonna you know screw up a case because of that but why even go near it why even have and here you have Bill Barr, who in Ukraine was at least a potential witness, stayed on the case, even more inexplicably on the Mueller case, wrote a whole memo saying this thing is dead at DOA, but I'm going to stay on it. And I, to this day, I don't know how the ethics folks at DOJ justified that. Because remember, when Whitaker, the, the sweaty, bald guy who was there in the middle, when he came in, they recommended him because he had also done a little bit of PR about how bad the Mueller case was before he uh, came in. They told him, you should recuse yourself, and he ignored them and didn't. Bill Barr comes in having done the exact same thing as Whitaker, only way worse, way more stridently, and they tell him, oh, you're good to go, boss. So I have questions both about Bill Barr and the ethics folks there. We've not seen this kind of situation crop up for Merrick Garland or his other top folks yet, but um, – so we'll give him an incomplete.
0: Yeah, and opinions aside, right, which uh, shouldn't be an aside, but let's brush them aside for a second, Barr's opinions on – um, the Mueller investigation, for example, and uh, no, Matthew Matthew. We call him Matthew fucking Whitaker on this show uh, or uh hot tub crime machine. Big, big dick toilet wine. That's it. Well, he uh, was the guy
1: with the toilet. Yeah the, the, yeah. the
0: toilets. <laughs> yeah. And we said, boy, when he goes to prison, he's going to be able to make a lot of wine in that in that toilet. So that's hence that nickname. Uh, but those opinions aside, we had Barr and Benchkowski uh, representing Alpha Bank, which was uh, under investigation in the Mueller probe, so you know that's ev- that's even a closer tie than your father's law partners, <laughs> sister's brothers, girlfriends, best friends, <laughs> nephew. You know, and and so even if you you might say, oh well, you can have an opinion about stuff and not have to recuse yourself. Uh, we know for a fact he put together he he went ethics team shopping, right, right. and right. picked a picked a group of, of ethics guys who wouldn't recommend his recusal because the first team did, so the, he made sure the second team didn't. And it's not
1: just it's not just having an opinion. It's it's publicly expressing an opinion. The example I would give is this: I happen to join the SDNY right after the Martha Stewart case happened. But let's say let's say I joined in progress, and let's say before I joined the SDNY, I wrote an op-ed that got out there in the newspapers. Uh, About how the SDNY's investigation of Martha Stewart was ridiculous and fatally misconceived and asinine, to use exact words, not ridiculous, but but (laughs) Bill Barr did say, all right, I wrote a piece, SDNY's investigation of Martha Stewart is asinine and fatally misconceived. Then I joined the SDNY, Martha Stewart case is ongoing, and they put me in charge of that case. It would be
0: lunacy. So uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. same thing here. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. All right. Number four, revise the special counsel regulations, please. <laughs> please, F. F.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously they've not done that um, at all, you know, but, but the, the biggest complaint that I have with Mueller, um, you know, some of it, there, there are things that can be tweaked around the margins that I talk about giving the special counsel more independence, but the biggest screw up by Mueller is actually something that kind of already is addressed in the special counsel regulations. I talk about this in the book. The regulations say that the special counsel at the end must issue a written finding explaining his prosecutorial or non-prosecutorial decisions. And Mueller just did not do that when it came to Trump. Now his excuse is like, "Oh, we don't want to sully a reputation."
0: But, well, he but, he explained he did he did give an explanation. Whether you think it's an adequate explanation or not, I mean, he well, said, "You know, look, because we can't because OLC is yeah. a candidate as any president, he can't face his accuser. I can't accuse him of a crime right. because that would be unconstitutional of me to do as a legal person in the United States." Yeah,
1: I mean, he, he's actually wrong about that. He, he he didn't quite state it right. He, he would be correct to say. We have a policy that I must follow against doing that. But to say he did say at one point it's unconstitutional to indict a sitting president. We don't know that. Nobody knows that. It's never been addressed in the Constitution by a court or in a statute. But yeah, so that's my beef with sort of Mueller. My beef, I guess, is a little more with Mueller than with the regs themselves. But the regs themselves um, can use some fine tuning. And and there's been no effort to do that so far. So I will give that a, a incomplete slash f so far
0: yeah and and i mean what you know we still have a beautiful pristine volume two with evidence and all three elements met on four of those things and it's just sitting there yep and so Mueller actually did his job there uh i mean some argue he should have just indicted him and then they could go over the olc memo and constitutionality of indicting a sitting president in court but he's not the president anymore and you can do it and so where is it yeah um all right. Now, uh, revoke discredited OLC opinions huh. oh, and restore OLC independence. Yeah, well, I think. I mean, look, <laughs> I,
1: I, I, I'm a, I'm enough of a realist to know they're not going to revoke formally revoke OLC opinions. I mean, there's a long history of terrible OLC opinions dating back to the torture memos and before that. Um, and, and they've never said we hereby disavow this one um they kind of just let them die away and stand as marks of shame but we had some particular doozies under the trump administration i will say at least they don't appear to be given continuing credence the idea of absolute immunity for the executive branch for example we've already seen um garland take some steps against that So, so i'll give them a b plus on that
0: okay all right now, um, moving on to uh, he, this is so huge because the office offices of inspectors general were just decimated yep. Yep. under under the former administration. So protect and strengthen the inspector general. Now, I know I know Merrick Garland, has given the Department of Justice inspector general, who is still the same inspector general. It's still Horowitz. Um, has given him assigned him to look into the the Clark thing and the yep. you know all that. So uh, how how do you think? I d I haven't seen anything um, I haven't seen anything strengthening him.
1: Yeah. Well I, I will say by simply not undermining the, the Inspector General <laughs> as Barr did publicly, um, he gets a B for just that. Um and I think it's good that he sent well, it's it's good but insufficient that he sent the Clark thing over there. And what I hope is not happening is the Inspector General is becoming a weak sort of decaf substitute for an actual criminal investigation, right? In other words, yeah, there needs to be an inspector general investigation of this, but there needs to be more, too, because this was a coup. And I think to just send it over to the IG and say, well, we did something and 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 we'll get a report is not enough. And if he's using the IG just as cover or band-aid, then I reject that and I give that a very low grade. Uh, but if this is sort of part of something bigger and, and more robust, then, then I'm in favor of that.
0: Yeah, that's my hope, is that – what the inspector general is is sort of providing a, a a due process step, right? So that because you know, you and I have talked about this. It would be worse to to, to lose this case than to not investigate it at all. And yeah. so maybe, you know, to just be able to help anything, any conviction hold up on appeal, uh, to say it wasn't just me. I didn't just run with this. You can't accuse me of doing this politically. I sent it to the inspector general and Congress. I had criminal referrals made to my office. I followed these procedures. I just feel like maybe that's sort of his institutional kind of way but in the meantime we have a a lunatic on the streets you know spreading the big lie and and quelling violence now let me say this uh, start you know starting it like inciting
1: strategically strategically as a prosecutor if you saw something and thought that's a crime i'm going after that you would not send it to congress you would not send it to doj because they would they could only screw things up they could only get in your way they could only inter you know create problems and and conflicts and interview people that you don't necessarily want interviewed Immunize people you don't want immunized you would say oh no, no i'm doing this first there will come a time for you congress and ig but you need to let me run with this first because it's criminal criminals got to come first and foremost that's how you would handle something where you were you were solidly convinced that it was yeah and
0: that's well. i think that's what when i talked to glenn kershner he thinks that that has happened he is convinced that where? they wouldn't hand they wouldn't hand jeffrey clark well, over to uh, the inspector general or I mean, the Senate that, but that's until they already had it. completely in
1: a... unfounded. There's no evidence that they've done that. that. That's just that's just wishful thinking. I disagree. Yeah, but I he, mean, it's possible. I'm not saying it's not possible, but you can't. When would they have done that? I've seen but, nothing to indicate that they've decided, yes, we're going to nail this criminally, but not announce the charges. And now let that's wishful thinking. And now let me send it to IG and, and Congress before I, I I don't even follow that.
0: No, I mean, I think what he's uh, what I'm saying is that everyone right. seems to be in agreement that that's something you do first. You impanel a grand jury. You get all your witnesses. And then you if should. the IG or Congress yes. wants to do what then they do what they do. And then, you know, then we could have our uh, you know, I think Glenn has a different opinion about whether or not that's been done or not. Um, but I think the core idea uh, is is the same. Right. You you do that first before you send it to Congress. You should.
1: Yeah, I think we agree on that, that. That's how it should be done. Yes.
0: Yep. Yep. One hundred percent. Clarify the prohibition of foreign election aid. Okay.
1: I mean, someone <laughs> someone has to do something about this. Look, the, the, this is like the most abused statute, right? It, it got Donald Don Jr. and Jared Kushner off the hook for the Trump Tower meeting. It got Trump himself off the hook for for you know a, a bunch of things. Um, this idea that well, a thing of value from a foreign country, you know, dirt on an opponent probably doesn't count or maybe doesn't count. The, the answer is we don't know. The statute says thing of value. Now, I think, talk to anyone who's ever been involved in a political campaign and ask them, hey, um, does, does generating dirt on an opponent, is that valuable to you? I mean, they'll laugh at you. But it's people pay most, millions for it. It's the most valuable thing that we have. They pay the most for it. Of course, it's a thing of value. But then other people say, no, a thing of value has to be cash or, I don't know, office equipment or something you can hold in your hands which to me is silly. There's only two ways this ever gets fixed. One is Congress comes in and clarifies the statute, but why would they do that? There's no political impetus behind that. The other thing that I think DOJ needs to do is just take a damn shot on one of these cases and say, okay, look, we don't know. We've never had an answer. I'm confident that we're right, that yes, opposition dirt is a thing of value. Let's charge a case. You know, you don't have it be the case of the century because it's a little bit of an experimental case. But let's charge a case on this theory and we'll get it into the courts and at least we'll get an answer. We won't end up any worse than we are now where we're just assuming it doesn't count and not doing anything as a result.
0: Yep. I 100 percent agree. Uh, it, I don't know why people are so reticent to take those first cases. You know, yeah. just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Um, reinforce the policy restricting public commentary on pending investigations. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> I will say, I mean, Garland has not done that Has in a good way, <laughs> has, has not come out and made comments on pending investigations. So so I'll give him a, a, a solid A for that. I mean, you know, yeah. again, it's Are like,
0: there investigations? Are there investigations? You know, but well, right, he hasn't right. said.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, he hasn't really said much of anything at all. Yeah. Um, but, but you know, that's as it should be. You shouldn't be out there opining on, as we saw from Bill Barr several times um, on pending investigations when politically advantageous. And by the way, um, I've now read two of the sort of behind the scenes Trump books. The, um, the one by... Uh, Michael Bender, which is great. And the one by uh, uh, Phil Rucker, and, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and Phil Rucker, which is also great. And it is very clear Bill Barr talked to both of them. Fine. You know, there's all these there's all these conversations recounted between Bill Barr and Donald Trump that make Bill Barr look strong and Donald Trump look weak. It's like, well, it's coming from Bill Barr. And th- there's even times when I don't know if they slip or whatever, but they talk about Bill Barr's internal emotional reaction. Like there's only one person who can tell you that. And a lot of the stories are very one-sided and Barr leaves out, you know, the fact that he was pumping up the big lie and all of that. But, but some of the stuff that jumps out at me is that I didn't even know before is like, Bill Barr thinks it at, at many occasions gives Donald Trump political campaign advice. He asks to come into Donald Trump and tells him, Hey man, you're losing in the polling and you're going to lose the election because you're doing X. You need to switch and start doing Y because that worked really well for George Bush or Ronald Reagan in their campaigns. I'm like. Holy shit. He's giving explicit political campaign advice and kind of bragging about it, like to these journalists. Um, and there's many other instances of that. I mean, the fact that he went to Donald Trump's post impeachment acquittal party. You remember that in the East yeah. Room with Trump? Bill Barr went to that. Like, how nuts is that? I mean, here's a guy who theoretically who's doing his job should at least be considering the possibility of criminal charges. He's at the champagne party. Yeah, um, or his anyway. thirty
0: thousand dollar holiday party at the Trump write, International. Yeah, yeah which is, I write about that in the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So and even when like, Bill hey. Barr
1: thinks, <laughs> even when Bill Barr thinks he's casting himself as the hero, he's still admitting to all this outrageous behavior.
0: Yeah, and uh, I'm going to ask you shortly about accountability for that. Yep. But the finally thing, the final thing here is is connected. With the public investigation commentary, but adapting the pre-election blackout rule formally because that's been an unwritten rule, correct? Yeah, Yeah.
1: Um, it's been a semi-written rule in that the last several AGs have issued letters and they all kind of like copy and paste from each other. But let's just formalize it. um, First of all, some people think it's 60 days. Some people think it's 90 days. I talked about this book like I always understood it to be 60 days, but no less than Sally Yates has said she thinks it's 90. It's kind of like one of these, you know, do you hear Springsteen saying waves or sways? It's kind of like people just hear it differently. Um, But let's clarify that. We should have clarity one way or the other. And um, let's clarify that it's a policy, that it's not A.G. to A.G., and that it what exactly it does and doesn't mean, because it was clear Bill Barr, and and he kind of confirms this in the books I just mentioned, was ready and willing to announce the Durham stuff during that period, except that Durham and his people, Nora Danahy, the woman who quit, basically told Barr, too bad, we're not going to be ready before the election, and we're not going to rush it. And if you make us rush it, she already quit, and the rest of us are going to quit, and then Barr back down. So we need to make clear that something like that would count. It doesn't have to say the candidate's name. If it's something that's obviously become fodder for the for the campaign, then you need to hold off on it.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, all right, Ellie, I, I mentioned I want to talk about bars accountability. This brings us to yeah. uh, the listener uh, question portion. So first is a question from Cynthia, and this is what I was alluding to earlier. Uh, Cynthia says, fascinating book. Love how it's written. Great insight. Um, especially for a novice as such as I. I also listened to Third Degree, um, also marvelously clear and mind-opening, which leads to my question. On Third Degree, you had an interesting discussion with a young self-described conservative Harvard Harvard student who mentioned his continued high regard for Barr. People do and should express different views. However, with Barr's unethical behavior, how is that still up for any debate? And how do you think we could see Barr being held accountable?
1: Yeah. So that, that, that's uh, one of my law student co-hosts, the other Ellie, as we called him. His name is Ellie as well. Um, I'm trying to think of like, what would the argument for Bill Barr be? And he's got his own book coming out in, I think, 2022. So I guess we'll see. I think the article for him is that he took a the argument for him by the sort of Federalist Society types is that he was the uh, platonic ideal of the Federalist Society in this idea that the president is the executive branch. Everybody and everything in the executive branch serves the president and solely the president's whim without limitation. And I think Bill Barr embodied that and enacted that to a, I believe, a ridiculous extent, but I think the Federalist Society would tell you to the perfect extent. So there's that. Um, What is the accountability for Bill Barr going to be? That's probably the number one question I get. I mean, look, let's run through it. Is he going to be charged with a crime? No, let's be realistic. I mean, certainly Merrick Garland ain't going to do it, right? He's not even willing to charge the January 6th protesters with felonies. He's not going to charge Barr with a crime. What what crime could you realistically charge Barr with? I think the closest you could get would be lying to Congress. Keep in mind, lucky for Barr, it's not a crime to lie to the American public, which he did a lot of times. Um, it's a crime to lie to Congress. He did that to varying extents, sometimes about trivial matters, sometimes about more significant matters. I just don't see any realistic way to expect that to happen, particularly under Merrick Garland. Um will he lose his law license? Possibly. There's been challenges filed um, where he holds a license. And we've seen other people, Rudy and Sidney Powell, start to have trouble along these lines. Rudy in particular. Um Barr's not, you know, as overtly out there as Rudy. But I do think he could have an issue with his law license. And I think to be, to be realistic about it, this is going to come down to legacy and history. And it's a big reason why I wrote this book, because there is no other book like it. There won't be. We will have Barr's, you know, we'll see. But we will have Barr's gauzy look at himself, I'm sure. And there will come a time 50 years from now, hopefully, where people look back at this and they don't know offhand who Bill Barr is or was or what he did. And I hope that my book can stand as sort of the go um, to resource to know what really happened to DOJ during those two years. It's not as satisfying as, uh, you know, a, a, a criminal case or, or you know, some some sort of like soaring rebuke. But but I think it's probably also likely the best we're likely to get.
0: Yeah. Yep. Uh, all right. Next up here. Um, this is an anonymous uh, submission. They they want your thoughts on the connection between Barr's dad and Epstein. Wild conspiracy theory. Suspicious <laughs> conflict of interest. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean it's it's uh, it's worth noting. I don't talk about this in the book, but I think the it was Bill Barr's dad ran some fancy private school, hired a young Jeffrey Epstein who had no credentials whatsoever as a teacher. I guess um, you know, putting him in the company of young kids. Um, And then, you know, I mean, that is interesting and and looks terrible, Um, probably should have looked terrible at the time. I don't have any basis to draw a link between that and the way Jeffrey Epstein was dealt with. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein was charged with very serious crimes by DOJ, um, I believe under bars, I believe in 2019 when Barr was there. So I don't think there's any reason to think Epstein was gone easy on. I mean, then there's the whole suicide death in prison thing but i I, i'm not i I don't have any basis to draw a line from the father to to his death
0: yeah i I kind of agree with that i i somewhere in between suspicious conflict of interest and wild conspiracy theory is where i'm at um and next up from celia i can appreciate not wanting to make any action seem political but what can be done to smoke out all the unqualified dickheads that trump appointed (laughs) to various judicial (laughs) roles including Uh, the department of justice
1: well, judicial roles, meaning judges, the answer is not, um, you know, you, they're, they're, they're federal judges, Supreme Court, Court of Appeals, and District Court are lifetime appointments. And by the way, one of the things that's been happening increasingly, and the Trump people really took it to an extreme, is appointing younger and younger folks to the bench. I mean, some of these people, there was the guy, I think, in Kentucky who was rated unqualified by the Bar Association. Mm. Um, but, you know, these are people in their 30s and 40s. I mean, they're going to be on the bench six, seven presidents from now. I mean, we'll be you know, I'll be dead and some of these people will be on the bench. Um, and there's nothing that can be done about that. I mean, can you impeach a federal judge? Sure. But that ain't happening just on the basis of he was unqualified. I mean, unless the person you know commits a, a horrible act or something um, and there's no political will for that either. So. Um, The answer is nothing. I mean, we can, you know, and how do you change this idea of life tenure? You'd have to amend the Constitution. Realistically, there's been other proposals for like rotating, but you'd still be on the federal bench. So um, look, I think I think the Biden folks are aware of that. I think they're going to look for younger and younger appointees and nominees. And especially you're seeing this with the Supreme Court. I mean, the way it lines up right now, you know, it's obviously a six three conservative advantage in the Supreme Court. But beyond that, the oldest justice right now is Breyer, who just turned 83. The three youngest are Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, and Neil Gorsuch, all of whom are, I think, between 48 and 55. They're going to be together for 30 years. That trio, um, and so I think I I would bet anything that if and when Biden gets a pick, um, it'll be somebody in there under 50. Um, to be, to be, you know, and I think from now on the days of appointing people in their sixties and seventies are just over because these seats are too valuable and they last too long. Someone made an interesting point, which, which I, I maybe there's something to it. Is when this was when the Constitution was written, two hundred some years ago, two hundred twenty five years ago, the average lifespan was forty, and so they they never occurred to them. People would, on average, live into their mid late seventies. Um, so. You know, you talk about an evolving world and an evolving document, but but we're stuck with it.
0: Yeah, I, I pretty much expect if Biden gets a pick that it would be uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, but you know, we will see. I,
1: I think so. I should let me just say quickly. I I, I covered um, a hearing in front of her. Was, I think it was the Don McGann hearing. And so I went and watched that hearing live, and she's remarkably impressive. I, I've re- I've been in front of you know dozens and dozens of federal judges. I don't know that I've ever seen one at a more prepared. Sharper in her questioning, but sharp intellectually. But very, some judges have this magical ability to be 100% f- firm and in control of their courtroom, but also totally courteous and decent to the litigants. And she did both of those things. I'm, 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 I'm very impressed with her.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I think, um, I think she'll. I, I'm hoping for her. I'm, I'm rooting for her. And I hope, yeah. I hope, Breyer retires. Retire. Just please step down. Uh, all right. What is the origin? This is from Lawyer Nerd. She says, What is the origin of the phrase dangling a pardon? Why are pardon <laughs> dangled as opposed to offered? I've never heard other types oh. of bribes or rewards being dangled.
1: Well, it is one of those things where, like, for some reason, people always have to use a certain word, right? Like, they always like it. So, like, in the NFL, they always have the kickoff that comes after the touchdown that always has to be called the ensuing kickoff. Um, <laughs> but I don't know why. But there is a difference between dangling and offering because offering is hey, I offer you this dangling is like, well, maybe, you know, look, Donald, look at Donald Trump's tweets. Right. I think dangling is a great word for that. He would say, well, you know, it's been an injustice and we'll see what happens and things will have to be done. That's dangling. He's like, hey, guys, like, you know, you would dangle keys to a kitten like you see what I'm offering here. So I, I like that terminology. But let's uh, let's see if we can come up with a, with an even more descriptive word. I think dangling is pretty good, though.
0: Yeah, I think I, I, I agree, because there is a difference between offering and hinting, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, and, and you know, that goes toward obstruction of justice. I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, next up uh, is from, well, uh, let's see, Robert Dixon. He says, I was feeling rather hopeless about the fragility of the Department of Justice. Do you think the DOJ can move fast enough to save our democracy? Good job on the audio book, by the way.
1: Oh, thank you. Uh, we had a Harper wanted to, Harper Collins, my publisher, wanted to have a, a professional reader do it at first. Um, and I insisted on doing it. And they have since admitted that it was a good idea for me to do it. I mean, could you imagine having like, I mean, the stories are so personal, right? Like, imagine having some professional voice person be like, during my first trial in the SDNY, you know, it's got to be that. <laughs>
0: um,
1: uh, gosh, what was the question?
0: <laughs> oh, um, e, uh, the, uh, besides the audiobook, do you think the oh. DOJ can move fast enough to save our democracy? Um,
1: you know, look, our democracy is going to survive at, at, at this point. I, I don't is he, I'm not sure if the, this question is referring to voting rights laws or to January 6th prosecutions um, on the voting stuff. DOJ is doing a lot. Basically, I mean, they've already well, they've already filed law, a suit against Georgia. Um, I, I expect more similar suits to follow in other states. And in fact, they're the only entity doing anything on voting rights because Congress isn't there. Honestly, Joe Biden isn't there. Joe Biden's rhetoric is is way out of line with his actions. I mean, Joe Biden tells us this is Jim Crow 2.0, and um, this is the gravest threat to our democracy since the Civil War, but I'm not willing to compromise the filibuster. I mean, that doesn't match up. If it really was the greatest threat to our democracy since the Civil War, you absolutely would be willing to change the filibuster. If it really was Jim Crow 2.0, you really would. So either Joe Biden doesn't mean what he says, or his rhetoric is overinflated here Um, because uh, the alternative is he's a madman and I don't think he's a madman. It would be like me telling you, "AG, we're in this house together. It's burning down. The only way out is kicking out that window. However, I'm not willing to kick out that window. You would say, well, either you're crazy or you don't really think this house is burning down. Those are the only Mm -hmm. two explanations. Mm -hmm. So I think DOJ is doing a good job on that front, um, on the, um, January 6th thing, I think it's been lackluster and I think they need to do better. And I think same thing with with respect to their investigations, or I should say apparent non-investigations of Donald Trump.
0: Yeah. Okay. And uh, this sort of feeds into the next question, too, from uh, Terrell Holloway. How can the law keep up with people like Trump who are presently and actively doing harm while investigations are going on, languishing, languishing investigations? We talk about this a lot, Ellie. How long? Uh, How slowly the wheels of justice grind. Right. Uh, And, you know, meanwhile, uh, you know, like there's I don't think there's much we can do about it. What do you what say you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good way to phrase it. The question of how do we keep up with someone like Donald Trump? Look, we've never seen anyone like this. We've never seen anyone with so little regard for norms and law and. You know, I don't know that there's a, an answer other than there has to be some accountability. There has to be some meaningful investigation, especially of obstruction of justice, um, which seems to have just sort of fallen by the wayside. And again, Garland doesn't seem to be have any interest in picking those things up. And I think there's a lot of damage being done as a result. I think Merrick Garland's approach to restoring DOJ and rule of law is to just be sort of quiet and steady and quiet and steady are nice. And, and good. But um, ultimately, I think it's just going to be like, we're just going to have to get past this and let it recede. That's his approach. I don't agree with it. Uh, but that seems to be what he's doing.
0: Yeah, I hope it I hope it ultimately isn't. Um, and and that kind of is what Ryan Patrick uh, listener is saying. Is there any is there any devil's advocate rational yeah. explanation for not indicting Trump yet on his more obvious and easily provable crimes.
1: Well, I I guess to run through them, right? Um, I think if you ask Jeff Sessions, or excuse me, Jeff Sessions, if you ask Merrick (laughs) Garland, um, if you ask Merrick Garland, if you got a couple beers in him and truth serum in him and off the record, you said, what's up with the Mueller obstruction? Like, how are you not doing anything about that? I think what he would tell you, I'm purely speculating here, is a combination of like, to indict the former president is going to be a political avalanche and a political earthquake. And I don't want that some combination of that. And he might say, look, Bill Barr already poisoned this well, because Bill Barr already put in writing, there's no obstruction of justice in his infamous four page letter. Is that binding on me? I don't know, maybe, but it ties my hands as attorney general. I don't agree that it does. But look, if he were to charge um, Trump with obstruction, the first thing a defense lawyer would do is to move to dismiss and say, the Department of Justice, yes, a predecessor, but this same Department of Justice already is on record Saying there's no obstruction, um, and so they can't go back on that. I, I think he'd probably be okay, but but I, I imagine Garland might point to that. Um, Ukraine, I don't know how he he justifies not opening investigation unless he just sort of takes the bar like approach of I just don't see a crime here. The president can't commit a crime when he's doing foreign policy or something, which is nonsense. Um, and January 6 and election interference. Again, maybe he would say, "Well, January six, free speech, First Amendment." But again, I don't. I think. I think Trump at least arguably crossed the line in a way that needs to be investigated. And election interference. This is the argument that Tubin made that I disagree with. Well, Trump would just say he really, truly believed he won, and therefore you couldn't prove intent. I think that's disprovable easily by looking at Trump's own words and actions. So,
0: right, um, the eleven thousand seven hundred and eighty. Yeah, example. just fine. I
1: mean, why one more than he needs? Why fine? You know that? Mm-hmm. Why just say?
0: Just say there was corruption. Yeah. 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 Uh, Well, Eastern District uh, of New York is investigating Ukraine, you know, Russian backed Ukraine uh, uh, election interference, but not necessarily have they said or they're investigating Trump. But I don't see how you can divorce those two things.
1: Well, SDNY has, you know, the Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman case is all about. Let's not forget. That's all about um, Ukrainian money flowing illegally into pro-Trump super PACs, three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Um, We'll see if there's you know, it's hard for me to believe that that was all the brainchild of Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman and with no involvement by anybody closer to Trump than that. They just came up with this on their own. So we'll see where that goes.
0: Yeah, well, now I think we're we're, I think to uh, Wednesday, by the time this episode airs, we will have had a plea change hearing for Fruman. Fruman. Uh, But yeah, Eastern District is has has its own investigation going on. So. You know, uh, we just, again, haven't heard anything about it being anyone other than, you know, furtosh land. Uh, right, but we'll, right. you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, I know that Rudy was uh, <laughs> lobbying on his behalf. We'll see where that gets yeah, to. Finally, course. one last great question here. There are a lot of anecdotes uh, in your book. Um, through your career? Was there one that you considered including in the book but didn't because while being interesting or amusing, it wasn't appropriate uh, for the book? If so, will you share it with us? Oh,
1: now? my goodness. Well, first of all, first of all, let me let me answer it this way. Anything that I thought would help make the points in the book, I included in a couple of instances. I, you know, I, I um, generified the names if I thought the person might be embarrassed or something like that. Um, but most of the time, I just gave the names of the people. Um no, because but there are all sorts of things that happen at the that are embarrassing or inappropriate um, that I did not include in the book because they didn't uh, sort of you know establish any given point. I'll just I'll tell you one thing um, because the, the SDY had a big prankster um, tradition that probably waned over the years. Um, one thing that predated me, but it was the stuff of legend, was a veteran gang prosecutor had a massive trial. Like, I don't, I don't know the details. This is before me, but you know, a huge multi-defendant multi-month trial um, involving guns and drugs and murders and stuff. And somebody, so he, he got his guilty verdict and then they argued it to the second circuit, right? Every guilty verdict gets appealed. And this is before the days when everything came through the ECF, the electronic filing system. So now when you get a ruling from a judge, you get a little blink on your email and then you click on it and you see what the ruling is. But this is this is like early 2000s or late 90s. So the way you would get your Second Circuit, your appeals rulings is there was a courier who would walk around the office with a with a, you know, like a shopping cart and hand you your mail. So some genius slash maniac typed up using the exact font and format and structure of a Second Circuit Court of Appeals opinion a fake opinion reversing the convictions on this poor guy's like <laughs> case of his lifetime and had it delivered to him saying, you know, the verdict is hereby reversed and remanded. And this poor guy, like, I mean, I having been in that situation of like sweating out a second circuit opinion, I mean, this poor guy must've had an absolute heart attack. I don't know how they broke the news to him, but I mean, and knowing the SDNY, by the way, I'm sure that, you know, they had the exact right font, the exact right everything in there. So it was probably almost undetectable to the guy. So um, there was a lot of that kind of stuff that, that went on at this. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like That's I said, awesome. it, it doesn't really prove any point I was making in the book, but, but I love that story.
0: That's a good one. Thank you for sharing that. And Ellie, yes. thanks again for, for taking the time to go over this uh, with us today. Everybody pick up Hatchet Man. It's just, it's truly an amazing book. And I've left the anecdotes, you know, I, I went through it chapter by chapter, but I've left the anecdotes out. I want people to read those for themselves. They're really, really, truly incredible stories and so well written. And I appreciate your time today. So thank you very much, Ellie Honig.
1: Thanks. And thanks again to you and, and your audience for reading this book. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, it was it was an easy one to read. I devoured it. So, thank you everybody until next time. Please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill and this is the MSW book club. The MSW book club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey, Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.